Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to Buzz Podcast. I'm Trev Danny and I'm here with Dave Hendrick to talk about the final episode of True Detective Season 4. Episode 6 it was, and it was an episode on which a lot was riding in terms of our hopes and our expectations and our ultimate judgment of the show. And Dave, I have watched it twice and completed the second watch all of five, ten minutes ago. And I'm completely different in my disposition towards it after the second watch than I was after the first. And my disposition is actually much more favorable. I was a bit antsy and a bit irked after the first watch of the final episode. Having watched it a second time, I picked up on so much more and felt a lot more at peace with a lot of the things in it. There are still some issues, but I think it's made me more overall positive in terms of my general take on what I think was an excellent series and a good production. Um, Where are you with it? Did you get a chance to multiple view or go back and look at bits and bobs or are you still after the first one? Where where are you in terms of how did that leave you sit? No, I'm the same. I I did watch it a second time. Now, my second watch wouldn't have been as in-depth as yours uh, because I know you tend to take a lot of your notes on the second watch and I just kind of let it fly. But... um, yeah, the same. There were, there were bits I didn't notice in the first watch because obviously I was watching it with somebody and you're, you're talking a little bit through it and, you know, when something happens, you're commenting on it or whatever, and maybe you miss something. But definitely on the second watch with a clearer head and less sort of in the moment of, oh, my God, uh, I definitely thought they closed off a lot more than I had initially thought, like you, I was like, oh, this, they, they failed to finish here and they haven't really explained this. And then the more the more I watched it on the second second time round, I was like, oh, no, now I get it. Now I understand that. Look, it's not it's not a perfect season of television. It's not season one of True Detective. But I think it is an excellent season. It's not, yeah, I agree. It's not perfect. But I think, in terms of the questions and the answers, I've watched a few reactions, and of course, YouTube's littered with them. And I watched a couple of the reactions. I get about, I tend to get about 10 minutes into these half hour things before I go, ah, your voice is annoying me, or your trite take on things, or your sarky take on things is annoying me. I just tend to abandon ship. Um, and the one thing that all of, I think it was two, two and a half, 
uh, that I delved into. In other words, I think I did five minutes of one of them. Uh, what the general take was there are unanswered questions. And I'm wondering, did, did you actually watch it a second time, lads? Because having watched it a second time, you may not like the answers. You may not like the answers, but the answers mm. are actually there. Mm. And I was thinking, they better fucking address this supernatural thing. And they do entirely address it. And again, you may not like the answer, but it is roundly answered for you at the end. And there's like, like there's no, there are no specific loose ends in terms of like massive big plot holes. I mean, at the end of season one, we never uh, got any arrests of those absolutely reprehensible cult lads who were abusing kids. That wasn't that wasn't a tied up thing. We got the big bad guy, but there was all that stuff from the video footage. None, none of those boys were ever uh, addressed. So, you know, I, I think there's always going to be unanswered questions. And if you look hard enough, and for me, it's just watching it a second time. There are explanations there, even if they're not the ones you were hoping for. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And like you, I I delved into some of the other reviews and some of the recaps, and and again, just found myself wondering, like, like kind of like we were, we were talking about, I think last week, where it seems like there was some people who went into the season wanting to dislike it for whatever reason. And then obviously when uh, Pizzolatto comes out and does what he does midway through the season with some of the comments on Instagram, that seemed to rally some of the troops and they kind of hate watched it a little bit more. But the the one review that stood out to me, and it's, it's from Paste, um, which is a monthly music and entertainment digital magazine, a chap called Akos Petterbets. Ultimately, the failure of season four isn't that it couldn't live up to the superior debut season, but that it never actually had any ambition to swing for the fences and attempt to be something different. I'm sorry. I really think Issa Lopez did swing for the fences. And if she made a mistake, maybe she swung too hard for the fences with this. That's the only knock I would have on her is that maybe she tried to be a bit too ambitious with it. The idea that they didn't swing for the fences, I mean, that to me tells me you went into this wanting to dislike it, wanting to find reasons to discredit it before a single scene had aired. Mr. Petterbenz, I'm sure you're a lovely fella, but as as a writer, you're a dreadful set of lads. (laughs) <laughs> to, to accuse this show of lack of ambition is actually comical. I will say one thing. It's occurring to me as you speak, uh, and it occurred to me as I watched it, the last episode the first time around, I kind of wish they hadn't bothered with all the tra- the season one connections. That, for me, is the only potential failing here. I wish they hadn't bothered because what it did was it overtly invited comparisons. And when you go and do that, you're on uh, hiding to nothing. You really are making yourself a hostage to fortune. They should have, I think, I, I whereas I was very tickled by it. And it really got, I think it probably got a lot of people hooked. Uh, but at the end of the day, the swirl symbol and all that kind of stuff the the Travis Cole character I'm not sure if that was worth it I mm. think possibly 
what it did was have a net negative effect in terms of making people think about season one all the fucking time and therefore invite comparisons. Now, of course, it's a buddy cop thing. So therefore it's going, you know, kind of a, a strong, fractious uh, relationship and, and, and strong personalities. It's it's there are overt comparisons to be made, but I I think perhaps there was a net negative there. What did you did that occur to you at any stage, or does it make any sense to you that that idea that perhaps that might have been where um there was a bit too much fence swinging going on, and maybe it's yeah. better to stand alone. Yeah, I mean, like I think she could have done the few subtle nods to it mm-hmm. without leaning as far in, like you as like you said, the Travis Cole character didn't need to be travis cole he could have been travis jones or something there didn't need to be the connection there uh to rust that didn't need to happen you know and i know it had been referenced in season one that that he lived in in alaska but you could have just let that let that alone there was a couple of other little things as well that they just yeah like you said a little bit too ambitious trying to link season one and when you do that, as you say, you are opening yourself up for endless comparisons. And the problem is, like, look, it, it, to, to draw back to the other world that we work in, when when you see a footballer compared to a greater footballer, it's a great compliment to that footballer. Like, you know, to William Saliba being compared to Van Dyke, it's a great compliment to Saliba. But ultimately, he's only ever going to be compared unfavorably because Van Dyke is the perfect centre-back. Season one of True Detective is almost the perfect season of television. It may be the perfect season. Like you said, there is that slight hole at the end where that gang are not brought to justice, but that's it. That's the one knock on it. Anything that is compared to True Detective, and really compared to it, not kind of linked to it, not like season two and season three, they were never compared to season one. Season four has actually been compared and put alongside in some discussions. And it's always going to shine unfavorably there because season one is amazing. Like it is genuinely the best thing you can watch. And that's probably done her a little bit of damage here. It's probably made some people look at it quite unfavorably. Yeah, I think, yeah. And the fact that it's a kind of a self-inflicted wound is the one that it, I, I, you just, you'd have a little bit of regret about it. Because again, I think this has enough to stand alone. And just in case it wasn't clear, my overall take on it is that it's a, a would I recommend this to other people? Absolutely. I think it's tremendous. It kept my attention for the entirety of it. Uh, you know, what we're doing here is picking things apart. That's the nature of what these kind of shows are about. So there's going to be some um uh critical comments and stuff like that but the bottom line is uh, you know overall i'm very glad i invested the time in it and actually they're very glad that we sort of launched buzz on the back of it i think it had so much there to get our teeth into it felt like mm. a really it felt like a really good um show for us to 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 launch this new era of buzz on because it was so meaty there was so much chunky stuff to get into yeah, and, and we've been able to really break the episodes down and, and kind of go down some rabbit holes on different things. And the thing with this show, like you said, it is absolutely something you'd recommend to others. What got me was I, I was thinking about the show week to week, you know, not just watching it and then talking about it, but mm. when you're waiting for the new episode to drop, 
I, I, I think a show has you when you're actively taking time from your day to think, where's this going? What's that character going to do? I wonder what's going to happen between Pete and his dad. Like, wh- wh- what's the next angle there? And as well as that, you start getting invested in the characters and you start kind of imagining them in different scenarios or you know with with Danvers we we know obviously that she lost her she lost her son she lost her husband we know her now i i want to know more about the time in between you know and i found myself trying to imagine what that time was like for her and as as if she was a real person and not just a character in a tv show and i always think when that happens that's when a show really has you so in that regard I think Issa Lopez and and the cast have done an amazing job because they made you invest in the characters. They made you invest in the storyline. That's it. You know, Russ Coles uh, inspired so much um, discussion and and probably fan fiction, if you're into that stuff, uh, backstory writing and the likes uh, and you'd be very I think that's a very that's a very good point you, you would be equally as curious about um, both Navarro and, and and particularly Liz she's actually uh, if, if if anything Liz's character is almost more um, mysterious her motivations the the fact that she doesn't really seem to miss the husband uh, it's more just all about the kid little things like that the fact that she's you know she, she's uh, she's almost like this um, uh, sort of in, 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 the immediacy of sex seems to be important for her mm. the, the, all these little things you could you could go out on a real sort of psychological limb here uh, analysing Liz uh, and it's yeah you do you find yourself answering questions on, just the final thing on, on season one and, and the comparisons I would say that I, uh, you know, I did firmly believe that I wish they hadn't done that. But if there had been a little Easter egg comparison point uh, in it, the one that I was really delighted by with this. I mean, when I when I heard the line in the show first time round, watching with herself, I was like, "Did you hear that?" And of course, she hadn't a clue what I was fucking talking about. And I had to pause and and, and I said, "No, do you remember that line?" No, I don't remember. Okay, great. So I'm on my own here. <laughs> and uh, and then I watched it again, and I got the same absolute thrill from hearing the line time is a flat circle now that one i thought i think that i'll tell you what dave as we go on to analyze the show i think it's absolutely fucking vital to your understanding of what is happening here because clark doesn't even know what that means when he says it but it does actually have a very interesting take um um it gives you an interesting slant on the show as a whole i i don't know where you're at now if there's anything else you wanted to mention at at the top or will we just get into it? What do you reckon? No, we'll just dig in. The only the, the last thing I'd say is I do I do sometimes even to this day find myself wondering, I wonder what Russ is up to Russ is up to these days. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like that show's years and years old. It's a TV character. And I'm always and like you mentioned the fan fiction. I'm like, I wonder what the next case forum was. It's just yeah, it's just one of those things where you get invested in a character because they make you invest in them. And you know, we saw that character kind of save the career of Matthew McConaughey. And we had the McConaughey, as it was called, dreadfully, <laughs> thereafter. And, and I do wonder if if this show will prove to be maybe a major springboard for, for Carrie Reese, Because obviously she's not somebody who's a, 
not somebody who's a, a you know an all that well known actor. She's a, a boxer who's become an actor or an actress, whatever whatever way you you, you want to term it. Um, she's only done a small handful of things, uh, much of which is still to be released. But I do wonder if this really could be a, a, a launching pad for us. And even for for Jodie Foster, who, I mean, in the, 20, in the 2000s, she had kind of an odd run where she made some flops and she kind of redirected her, her energy in, into the 2010s, where she became a director most prominently. Now she's back acting, and I, I do wonder if maybe this show sees her get a three to four year run where she gets some big hitters, you know? Yeah. She's the go-to for the older woman type characters in, um, in Hollywood, very possibly. And I, I would, I would, I would love that. I'll tell you. And just again, you know, this is just uh, an initial take. Um, and it's coming from someone who spent an awful lot of time staring into cameras himself, uh, and prancing about on stages, uh, with Callie Reese, I'm not 100% sure if she's going to be a superstar. Uh, I think she really suits this role, um, uh, and I think she, I think she does a super job with it. I genuinely think she does a super job with it. But there's just a case. Listen, I can't tell you. You know the way uh, you'd be very good at, at um, uh, again to touch off the other area in which we talk a lot. You'd be very good at, at um, maybe getting a feel or a sense of what a player's like and be able to compare and contrast a lot quicker than almost anyone I know. I kind of tend to have that with with actors and 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 mm. and, and some of this stuff. And even even when I read a piece by someone, I, I kind of get a feel for whether they're going to be good or bad or indifferent long term. I'm not I'm I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure about Cali Reese. And um, mm. I hope I hope she does. I, I really I like the idea that you're saying that this could be that springboard for. Her. And I'm all for people having that career change thing. That what 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 the show plays up to brilliantly is her own strengths in that it's a, it, the, the, the physicality of the role for her, like she's yeah. the, the viciousness of the, of the beating she's given to, um, to Clark in the, towards the end of the show here, all those kind of things that, sh- that scene that you spoke about at length before where she attacks that, uh, wife abuser guy. Um, that's, she's really in her element doing that, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I thought carried the emotional scenes really well in this last scene. And, and, and I, you know, um, overall I thought, you know, tremendous, like she is Navarro for me. So it'll be interesting to see if she can transfer that skill set to do a completely different part. They'll really, really be curious to see what that looks like. Um, on rust. I hope rust is, uh, you know, making those little beer can men sitting somewhere. Uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, just outside uh, Area 51 or something in a in a in a little mobile home, um, having a few beers. Although I think we were supposed to think from the end of season one that he maybe has knocked the booze and had a little bit of a redemptive moment. I'm not sure, but yeah, it makes it's 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 nice to imagine. Um, season four, however, concludes with this episode, and my God, a lot happens. So we'll just get into what happens happens uh from the start here now i liked one thing dave they began this the flashback sequence at the start which i assume is standard across all uh channels and and networks that are showing it the very first line of the flashback um to get you up to date 
is Navarro saying, did you ever get this feeling you just want to disappear, just go? Now, this is absolutely central to this episode and how you feel about the show overall at the end, I think. And I don't think it's an accident that it's there at the top of the flashback sequence. We're reminded that we're into the 14th day of night here. It's um, New Year's Eve. Um, and as they descend into the ice caves, Navarro and, and Liz, um, you can't help but think, my God, most of the show has been there in front of us on the credits from the start. I'll come back to that. But I, I couldn't, as this show, this final show progressed, I was like, loads of stuff from this last show is right there in the credits from the start. So a little bit like what um, Issa Lopez said, it has all been in front of us right from the start. Um, I love the descent into hell. You can't help thinking of, you know, Dante and the, the, the various levels of hell, circles of hell as they're going down, because it, not only did they go down one, but they burst down into another one later on. And it's just increasingly hellish as they descend. Um, but I like this opening part because as they're walking through these caves, what a setting, by the way, so cool looking. Um Evangeline says to Liz, "You feel it too, don't you?" Because she just sees Liz shivering, and and we're we're already we're off to the races now because this is this is the episode where finally uh, Liz reaches her all time critical, furious, uh, cynical best, and then has to back down because finally Navarro wears her down. Uh, because Liz has her own experiences and Liz comes to understand what Evangeline says later on, that there's more than just this. And it's set up, I thought, no perfect from the start there, because we we already know all the key ideas of where the story's going to go. Oh, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Like you said, I mean, the, the setting of this is is incredible. Like, it's just whoever's found the location and, and staged it, it's it's just, it's masterful. And one of the things that really has struck me in this show as a whole is, is just how, how breathtaking so much of, of where they are is. Yeah. And, and, and how difficult it must've been to produce this caliber of, of show and, and this ranging of a show in that area. Very, very impressed with that. But, yeah, no, I fully agree. Fully agree. The the the, the second descent, uh, where they the, the the first one's a bit of a bust. Eventually, saying, you know, it's here, it's here, and Liz is like, ah, fucking, there's nothing here, and she, uh, Evangeline collapses through the ice to the next level, and she it becomes a bit regretful and uh, has doubts. Then Liz collapses through. And I think the story might have have been in danger of petering out there because we did see Navarro have doubts and Navarro start to be regretful and apologizing to Liz for taking her on this wild goose chase. And here, I think possibly the first of the, oh, right, well, I suppose it's the last episode, so they have to do shit like this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. But just as they're like sort of shrugging their shoulders and dusting themselves down after the collapsing through to the second level of ice, there's Clarky. Uh, mm-hmm. Clarky wrapped in a blanket. And I just thought, all right, I mean, look, that's quite handy. And off we go on a chase. And that's brilliant. Uh, and, and, and look, I, I want to address this now very briefly with you. I, I'm willing to cut a lot of slack to a show in its final episode for having things that seem a little bit pat or a little bit uh, convenient because you do have to drive the plot along, I guess. Um and maybe the shock value of that was worth it anyway. And it does, as I say, really drive the plot because we're immediately now into a chase. They've stopped um, um, and feeling sorry for themselves. And now we're back onto, uh, you know, um, true detectiving, you know, chasing and trying to get to the a root of the of the crime. In terms of that, and there's a few other little things that happen um, that are just like, well, that was, that's handy, I guess, timing wise. I don't know how critical I feel about that. And like certainly on the second time round, I didn't give a shit. I think the first time round, I was like, because I had the radar up for looking for negative things and this better end well or I'll be pissed kind of attitude. Um, I, I, I was kind of that's what struck me the first time around. Second time around, I didn't even think of that. So I just wondered, had that crossed your mind at all? Yeah, because like in the lead up to it, you're just you had built your own anticipation towards the final episode and. We had talked about uh, both on last week's pod and, and kind of in, in the interim how they had they had a lot to, to wrap up here and they had a lot to kind of finalize here. So you did have your radar up for like every single bit. Like, are they going to address this, this, this and this? What are they going to do here? What are they going to do with this character? Where's this going to go? And I think on the second watch, because the first watch was positive on the second watch you go into it with more of a of an open mind to it or or like a less ex- expectation because it's already it's already come close to meeting your expectations on the first watch second watch you're, you're going to be easier on it because you know they've done a good job so you're not as hyper focused on certain things and like you said you can sort of let things flow off you much easier because you're not wanting to jump on and go, ah, look, they didn't do that. There's, there's a big hole <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, on second one, I, I, and I do think it is one of those shows that does sort of require a second watch. And I think what I'm actually going to do is, is I'm going to rewatch the entire thing back to back to back, almost like a, a seven hour film, a six hour film, and uh, and just see see where it takes me. But yeah, no, I, I think you, you think you've nailed it there. It's it re- re- requires, I think, yeah, is the right word. It certainly rewards a second viewing, and that's in and of itself, right? I've, uh, no greater tribute can you make to a TV show, um, a piece of television, than uh, watching it a second time makes it better. Uh, I think that's uh, in and of itself. Surely that's a, a decent metric for 
good television right there that by watching it a second time you're automatically making it you've seen more you're liking it more i think that's that's credit to whoever's writing it it's credit to whoever's making it um directing it and so on um they, they they're starting to think they're trapped at that point like i say that becomes the focus um when we see uh old clarky um irish clarky um appearing and like you said it is what it is but as they chase him through they come to this sort of facility underground it's a some sort of laboratory-esque facility we can see some ice cores and other things there and they look up and it's liz who sees it first and what they see is this great spiral serpent uh skeleton Mm. in the ice and this probably is another point to stop. There's going to be loads of these, but you'll, you'll, you'll have to forgive us if you're just here for a summary of the episode. Go and watch the episode. We want to talk about the things that are happening here. Um, I, I don't I don't want to just blow the whole tape that I have on it right at the start. But when, when Navarro says later on that there's something more and Liz comes to feel that that's the case, um, you begin then to understand why certain things that are about to happen happen. You begin to understand why that fucking Beatles song is playing. Mm. You begin to understand why there are oranges rolling out from every fucking surface. And you begin to understand that these things are happening to these people in this time. This thing, overall thing, which at the end we come to understand via the ladies who are just, as far as we knew, cleaners earlier on. We understand that there's some feminine spirit here that lives in this place in Ennis, that is ancient and that is disturbed and is disturbing reality. And that's what's actually happening. And so all of the supernatural stuff then starts to make sense. You you start to understand on the second watch why Liz goes to have a lie down and is, is has a crucifix sticking into the back of her hand. She picks it up and throws it away. That's a reference to Navarro's man. What's going on? So these kind of, it's like a haunting that's occurring. These people, it's like there's signs coming out to uh, all these various people um, from this overall guiding spirit that seems to be in charge and that Clarky has mistaken for Annie. When Clark was saying, when Clark says later on, times of flat circuit, she's always been here, she will always be here. It's not Annie. It's this other thing. Yeah. And, I didn't quite get that first time around in my, again, radar up going, come on, answer all the questions. And it's so obvious and so clear and it makes everything so much more rewarding when you understand that. And assuming, Dave, assuming you're okay with that side of things, for some people, the supernatural thing won't be for them. For me, it made everything just a far better fit. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's the same crucifix that Navarro has chucked out of the car in an earlier episode when she yeah. finds it in the, in the car and chucks it out. So you, you think, well, how, how's it gotten from there when she just throws it out on the road to now it's in Danvers hair. How's that happened? And it, it does it, it, the supernatural side of it, if you're willing to accept that and you know, we live in a country where people accepted the supernatural into their hearts and their lives for centuries um this should be an easy an easy move for you uh yeah it it it, like you say it once once you're willing to be open-minded to that the episode does make so much more sense the spiral serpent symbol i'm not 100 percent sure 
what we're supposed to make of that, why the um, uh, why people understand what it meant, why Rose understood what it meant, what it was supposed to signify. There was some trite explanations that it was just a sign earlier on. I remember Cavic's pal mm. said that the, the old woman, his grandmother, it was, for them it was a sign that you shouldn't go. Uh, this, this is where the caves are. So they've always, I, th- I think the, sim- the, the, the spiral has always represented the cave. So maybe there's a, an ancient knowledge of this thing, of this creature. Is that creature the spirit? Uh, is that the, the, the feminine spirit? Who knows what it is? But it does actually kind of tie it up that the caves and the spiral are inextricably linked, and therefore, whatever's down there, um, and in the night country, uh, the whatever spirit this is that that seems to be guiding events here, um, it's symbolised by that spiral. Uh, whether that's for good or for evil is for people to interpret, and very much depend on your worldview. But we get further into this here, um, because the the chase trying to find Clark continues and. As they go, they come to another little place and they find this um, star-shaped screwdriver thing, which Danvers immediately identifies as being the potential murder weapon. And then we find the hatch. And of course, for those of us who were big into Lost back in the day, that has evocative memories in and of itself. Um, and then when they open up the hatch, we find we're in Salal. And Salal, of course, has gone over the course of the show from being this place where all these um, um, climate scientists are, you know, doing their best to save the world on multiple fronts to being a place of uh, corruption. Um, We flash back just quickly to see Pete cleaning, and it's a very deliberate sequence. And later on, uh, you know, uh, uh, Evangeline says to, to Liz, a prior's fuck for life, isn't he? And you see, you see Pete at the end as well in the kind of montage wrap-up sequence, and he's got wee Darwin tucked in beside him. Um, he doesn't look content, Dave. And I think we're supposed to we're supposed to get from this that there are no easy ways out. That there are going to be consequences for everyone. Liz has had to live with consequences. Uh, the, um, Evangeline will have to live with consequences. Pete will have to live with consequences. But they all seem to have found by the end of it a little sort of way forward that's positive. At least he is back with his son. Um, Liz, Liz and Lee are seen to be reconnecting and we'll speak at the end about whether Liz and Evangeline are. So uh, it's it's very important that we understand just how traumatic this must be. Literally cleaning up your dad's brains off the wall uh, and showering yeah. it off you. You know? Yeah, I mean it's it's you know it that scene where he's he's, he's cleaning up the the mess in Danvers house and he's, he's going about it in quite a, what's the right word? Like he's got very much a, you know, a a way that he's going to do this. It's, it's almost like, you know, we've talked before about how um, Navarro has these moments where she sort of detaches from reality. And it almost, it's almost the same here with prior where, he sort of detached himself from the reality of this is my dad that I'm cleaning up here. And he's going about it in a very, you know, predetermined manner. I'm doing this, then I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to do that. And I've got to wrap the bodies and I've got to do this. And, and as we find out as the next scenes featuring him, he, he has this all planned out and he's almost been able to take the 10,000 foot view of it 
rather than being too trapped in the moment. Because let's be honest, cleaning up anybody's brains would likely freak the life out of you. But he's able to go about it almost robotic like and just do it and get it done. And then we have the scene, obviously, where Leah arrives at the house and he has to snap back into. But you see him kind of struggling to make excuses to her. And like, so like that's what I'm saying. He's almost like detached from from the moment because of obviously it's a very traumatic thing that's that he's been through. But um, I, I just thought it was really well done. That Pete arc, we might as well conclude that now because there's so much of the story left. As you say, Leah arrives at the house and he manages to convince her to go back to stay with um, his wife and his son so they're not alone on New Year's Eve while he goes off to do this one thing that he has to do. Um, and we see him picking a little bit of debris out of the, out of the, the door lintel before he goes. But the when they eventually get to um, uh, Kayla's place, Uh, she comes out, she rushes out to him. And there's an odd sort of, and again, this is one of those things that I think some people will think is a little bit, you know, well, that's convenient. After being so pissed at him for constantly going away, he says, I have to go away. Uh, And she seems to not only forgive him, but be back in love with him again. She calls him an asshole in a a kind of playful way, but it's it's very much come back to me kind of thing. We're okay again now. Um, And I, I think some people might think that was a bit, uh, contrived or perhaps a bit a bit handy but I think what she's seeing there is and I think you know this might go back to what you were saying a second ago what's happening with Pete is the innocence whatever innocent view he had of the world is now gone right because uh, as he says when when they're talking about uh, Liz is saying no look I'll clean this up you don't need it he says this is mine and when he's talking to Kelly he says I did a thing I have to fix it and I think maybe She's seeing in him now sort of um, that honesty and that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of um, thing that she's always admired about him. Um, integrity, but it's also there now. It's it's hurt. It's 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 it, she can read what's going on with him. So, again, second time round, I completely it didn't it didn't jar with me at all. In fact, I thought it flowed really well. Um, I don't know if you've anything else on that scene or on those characters, uh, Leah and uh, Kayla, Pete and Darwin at this point. Is there anything else that we need to say about? Because we'll, we'll get back there in the wrap up for sure. Yeah, we've got to we've got to come back to Pete a bit anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of like, course, with the Rose scene. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously in, in, in the, the last wrap up as well, we get a bit more explanation and a bit more. The kind of points to maybe an interesting personality bit with him that we hadn't seen. So we'll come back to him in terms of um, in terms of Leah and and Pete's misses. I, I thought it, it kind of wrapped that that part of it up really well. I, I liked that we saw the thawing of the ice between Pete and his misses. Clearly, his missus was was quite concerned about him, and like you said, she calls him an asshole. But it's very much an it's like a term of affection, like when my mother-in-law calls me an asshole. Uh, it's, it's said with love, you know. Um, you sure? <laughs> well, I hope so, because she's been doing it for long enough, but I'm still allowed in the house. So, um, yeah, or a desperate gobshite is generally the, the top-level term of endearment there. Um, I suppose I, I, I walk myself into these things. But, yeah, no, I, I, I do. I, I think I think that I... I saw some people criticize the scene and you're right. Like there will be people that will go, Oh, that's, that's a bit hokey or it's a bit, a bit too easy, isn't it? 
No, it's just life, though. Like, yeah. let's be real. Like, this, this couple, they've been together for years. They've clearly been through a lot of shit, you know. Their relationship won't have pleased a lot of people because she's, I don't know, First Nations is the right term. That would be more the Canadian uh, things, Inuk maybe. Um, and he's obviously white, so there's going to be some racial tension there. And there's clearly racial tension in Ennis between, you know, the white folk, the settlers and the, the more native people. So they've clearly had to overcome all that. They've had a kid. They're a young couple. We know that he was the big hockey star. So clearly he's been through disappointment in his life. I'd like to, I'd like to have gotten a little bit more background on, on what happened there. Um, but they've been through a lot. And when you go through a lot with somebody, and you'll know this, and I know this from our own relationships, like it does sort of galvanize you to the outside, outside world. So even when you have the bad patches, it's very easy to come back together because you've built such a strong bond. And that's clearly what's happened here. Yeah, very, very, and very quick. Uh, because I think that's that's really insightful what you said that's life because people might think that there's going to have to be a whole big like conversation over and back and no, no that's not necessarily how these things work it can be fucking instant uh, illogical uh, requiring no explanation and based completely on understanding of uh, the other person and you know so for that reason again uh, some of these arguments and and critiques that I saw just seem to be for the sake of it. And so it's worth pulling them apart, not necessarily to lionize the writer or the show itself, because ultimately, Dave, I'm going to say it's not even probably an eight out of 10 for me overall. It's brilliant. Very good, because there's not much good television being made, if we're being honest. Mm. But it's, you know, so it's not about me trying to put this up on a pedestal or say, you know, hey, I'm Issa Lopez fanboy. You know, like, that's not the point here. The point is, let's not just be petty and poking holes for the sake of it. And look, we need to drive the plot on a bit because... The, the the our heroes go chasing old Clarky, uh, and Evangeline is distracted by some wet footprints that disappear into a wall. That's an obvious reference to Julia. Liz is haunted by the twist and shout song coming from another living room, the same living room. I couldn't remember. I, I meant to re- rewind and go and compare and contrast, but I don't understand how she has to tear out the media unit because I thought she did that the first time. Anyway, both of them are being haunted. Later on, um, after they have their initial uh, catch up with Clarkey, there's a, a conference in the kitchen and an, an orange rolls out. Um, also, Liz steps on a piece of glass. Both of these are references to the two central characters' pasts. Um, but the inter- initial interaction with Clark is that he basically traps Liz. Uh, then he almost kills Evangeline with a f- serious bang of a, of a fire extinguisher to the mm. back of the head that would probably kill most people. Um, and we see him dragging her away. By the time Liz has battered herself out of the uh, confines that he's put her into, <laughs> we get to the room and Evangeline is battering the absolute bejesus out of Clarkey there. Uh, you know, he's not long for this life if Liz doesn't get there uh, in time. And, you know, it's 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 very interesting. They they then at this point decide. And I think the the ruthlessness of this is quite is I quite liked it. Um, we see them. With Clark tied to a chair, uh, Navarro asks um, Danvers, has she got headphones? 
they plug in the screaming final moments of uh, Annie Kay's life on the video, play it to him on a loop and leave him there uh, with it taped to him so he cannot escape it. And it's, I would have thought, a highly effective, also very Guantanamo Bay type of way of yes. approaching, extracting uh you know, a little bit of normalization of torture there, but of course, because he's the big bad guy, we can justify it. But that's what people seem to think he could do with like a movie with like Zero Dark Thirty or something. So maybe be a bit careful what you're what you're saying is absolutely cool. I saw someone say that was cool. Yeah, fuck that guy. You know. But anyway, it's what it is, and it works. Um, because by the time they get back to him, he really does have a desire to chit chat. He tells them all about the microorganisms and the permafrost and that they would cracked it. And there, yeah, we know all this. Um, you're going to save the world, blah, blah, blah. But you couldn't do it. And he says, no, we were. We cracked it. Um, and the, we get all the backstory that the pollution from the mine was actually helping to weaken the permafrost, which meant that they could access this microorganism more readily. And so they were actually pushing the mind the salal institute were actually pushing the mind to produce more pollutants uh annie sneak snuck in at one point she um to quote him says discovered the truth um uh he he he, he did all that and, and she destroyed the, all of it she destroyed all their work and he says all that potential to do good uh she just obliterated it um and we have that flashback and it's horrific to the scientists actually killing Annie. Lund in particular goes crazy and snaps. Oh. And it's quite fitting because Lund is this probably the scariest moment in the whole show is Lund sitting up in the background behind uh, Navarro and then speaking to her in that possessed voice. Um, that's It's a terrifying moment. So it's quite interesting that he is actually probably the worst of the lot. Uh, but they all join in, Dave. It's a kind of a frenzy and they stab her and they kick her and all the rest of it. On the back of their special work having been defiled, their special um, achievement having been ruined. That's what the justification for it is. Um, and it's, you know, in one way, you can see that there'd be uh, oddballs out there who would make that um, uh, argument that the scientists are making. And you can also see how it's inherently awful and wrong at the same time. It's it's very powerful. They use flashbacks in this show so well, even when there's like um, a false narrator uh, telling you a different truth over what we actually see. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a very powerful technique used very well in this show. It is. It is. And, like, that is quite a horrific death scene that you don't generally see. But it, it plays to, you know, the kind of rawness of a lot of what took place in this show. Um, and, it's it, you know, like, it's like a feeding frenzy. You know, it's like when you see someone drop a piece of, you know, bloody meat in with a bunch of piranhas and you see them all just swarm on it. Um, it's 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 really intense. And it it explains, you know, because because they talked of her death and how horrific it had been. And this fully explains why it was so horrific, that it wasn't just one killer, that it was the entire team of of scientists who who did this. And like you said, like there will be people that will say, oh, it was justified, like they she destroyed their work. But at the same time, like that's just work. 
that this is a person's life that's been taken uh, in in brutal fashion. But I yeah. like that they didn't shy away from it. I, I like that they didn't like they could have gone different ways, like say that, that it was just Lund who did this and it was because he was possessed or whatever. But I like the way it was. They explained that it was everybody. Um, and and, 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 espe- and especially Clark, who yeah. who's, is saying one thing and we're seeing the other about he's talking about I never hurt her. I loved her. And we're seeing that, you know, when she when she sort of um, uh, comes back to consciousness and whether she would have lived or not is another thing. She's in huge distress. But he's the one who's, you know, you know, in full on psychopath mode saying, shush, shush, no, don't, you know, and then, and then fully, I'm sorry, I'm sorry afterwards. But he's actually the literal murderer. So, yeah, he's the one that kind of, to, to coin a phrase, puts her out of her misery. Like, yeah. But, but I wondered, was like, because of how he was describing it and what we saw, was he almost doing it from a place of love? Like, she's not going to survive these wounds. I don't want her to suffer through this. And I certainly don't want the others coming back over. Like, it's psychotic either way, but is he almost like, I'll be the one to end this because I love you rather than I'm going to let them anywhere near you again. And I don't want, like, you're not going to survive, so I don't want you going through some torturous ordeal. Do you know, it's there's like a conflict there within him where he's still a terrible lad. Like there's no question he's still involved in that. He is the one that, that does kill her in the end. But I, I, I wondered, was it a bit more like he did it out of, out of love and mercy for her than anything else? Yeah. I'm not sure if it's because he's Irish for random reasons, but I did find myself having similar thoughts. At least that shows some conscience. At least that shows that there was a genuine emotion there in terms of the affection for Annie at one point. Um, um, but yeah, clearly also he is the one on the sharp end of, and therefore there's not going to be any forgiveness from uh, Evangeline or Liz, and Evangeline is particularly aggressive towards. We find out a lot in this next sequence. It's like they cram so much in here. Um, the as he's sitting there on on the chair, um, you know, there's another sort of like I say, they take a break, and that's when we have the. The, the, the chat about the oranges and all that and then we come back and we just have the chat that we talked about there which is the flashback but Clark insists that he knows nothing about the tongue now I'm not even going to stop here and get into this because if I do we'll get derailed but the tongue is one of the few things that is left as a mystery at the end I think mm. I'm not 100% sure and we said we might think about doing another one of these shows if there was enough of these so let's just make a mental note there's Number one, that for me at least isn't solved. Maybe you've got a, a reason. He also then references Hank coming back. He says maybe Hank was the one who did the tongue as a kind of a warning thing. And maybe that in itself is an explanation. But Evangeline snaps at this point. And Danvers just exits the room and Evangeline says, you're not going to stop me, no? And uh, no, he's not, she's not going to stop her. And we see her pull her gun. Um, and as she's leaving, Liz is having a flashback to Wheeler, who I didn't realize in, in my in naivety first and second time is seems to be whistling twist and shout which is mm. pretty pretty freaky um and when we it emerges that that the evangeline doesn't actually take his life whatever amount of time has elapsed and it must be a long time because we can only assume that's the time in which she gets this confession that we see later on um again flat circle and all that by the time uh, evangeline comes out of the room and talks to liz 
it's um it, 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 she says basically Liz says I was you know I was just about to do it myself and we're not sure whether she's not sure whether she means Clark or Wheeler and we see the two of them kind of united because both of them had the impulse to kill these terrible lads uh, and in both cases it was Evangeline's sort of uh, I guess hair trigger temper that got her there first. Um, but we see that Liz is very much complicit and had exactly the same inclinations. And that's kind of an important unifying thing ahead of this last episode, which does so much good work in the next few scenes on developing and filling out this relationship between the two, uh, the two leads in a way that genuinely is reminiscent of Marty and Rust. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And, like I was the same as you when 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 Danvers says I was going to do it myself, I was like, which one does she mean? Like, who does she mean she's going to do it? Or so was it was it Wheeler? If so, why has there been this fallout between the two of you so for so many years? Or are you talking about Clark? In which case that makes you know that that's absolutely you know makes sense. Um, but this this is a tough scene. Like you, you mentioned the. The, the torture side of thing and the kind of the Guantanamo Bay-esque feel to it. Like from from that, the whole Clark scene, that then him telling the story and, and the the review of, of the, the flashback to to the, the actual murder scene, to this, you know, Navarro taking her gun and going it like it, it's it's very raw. Like there's no, you know what a lot of American shows, and there's a few other things that this relates to in this in this show as a whole. Things are sensationalized, but also softened a little bit, and they're not glamorized. But you know, do you know what I mean? Like they're made to seem less less difficult than they less, actually are. Less, yeah, less, less gritty, less gritty than and less yeah, gritty. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. Whereas with this, I do think they they would they did well to lean into the gritty nature of it and you know how how realist how real this is for for the characters. They made it feel more like this is what would actually happen in these scenarios. And it's what makes Liz and um, Evangeline more relatable because all of us understand. I, I, I don't know what it is, but. It, Maybe it's just a personality trait of mine, but it must be shared by the other people that I've I've spoken to about it as well. Because you know, I think most people like a good revenge drama because most people mm. can understand if you have been wronged, the the imp the impulse to to right that wrong, and if you see innocent person wounded or hurt, the impulse to right that wrong. And at the end of the day, that's what these two characters are literally driven by and all about. And I think that's quite interesting. I I was completely wrong what that mustn't have been when the um the confession was extracted it will be at the end of the next little bit because they do go back in and you know uh they, they, they like they take a little break there's um we see liz having a, some vodka and she cuts a, an orange into a perfect swirl for reasons uh again one of those things that you just assume something is making or do or leading her to or whatever um and we then have this next confrontation and chat with Clark and he tells them um, 
he says it was Annie. She killed them. He, uh, he says, I kept seeing her. I kept hearing her voice. I knew she'd come for us. Now, Liz is absolutely outraged at this. She thinks that enough with your bullshit, your, your, your superstitious mumbo jumbo. She's really angry. Um, and there's, a, again, more flashbacks. We see Clark just escaping before Salal is invaded. We don't see who by. We hear sounds of horror and sounds of fear. Um, and that makes the whole glitching Clarky she's awake thing make sense. We get it now. He's gotten a kind of advanced warning because he's now tuned in uh, via Annie to whatever this thing is. He thinks it is Annie and he has a, it, it's a little bit of an early warning system. So he gets down the hatch. And he has to stand there holding the hatch. And that becomes a real metaphor later on for Evangeline as well. Um, but he says he, he held the hatch for like a, a, an hour or maybe a week. He, he doesn't know it was a hellish uh, long period of time. Um, but they go on, they tease out more plot details. Why did you go and make contact with Alo Heiss? Uh, he says, I wanted to know how to survive her. And again, he thinks by that he means Annie because, you know, um, Mm, that's who he's relating it that's, to. That's who he's relating it to. Liz says, again, Liz, you know, getting straight to the bones of it, says, look, that's bullshit because she, she wasn't even born when Otis had his experience. And this is where we get time as a flat circle and we're all stuck in it. Now, I love that because, it may, call it fan service if you like, but I love that because it made perfect sense in Clarkie's scientific mind. He thinks he's made some sort of breakthrough. The way he understands the world now is that Annie is this thing that has always been there. Annie is part of this world. Uh, there's further explanation as we go, but I do like that a lot. And then it's at that point when um, uh, Danvers has had enough of this nonsense mumbo jumbo and she walks out that Evangeline and him are left alone. And he says to her, look, I'm so tired. Just do it or let me do it. And it's at that point that she must extract that confession from him and, and videotape it before she releases him off into the wild so he can die in the same way as the rest of the lads mm. because he wants to go. He's had enough. Um, incredibly powerful. Again, brilliant use of flashback. Lovely tension throughout it. Questions being answered left, right and centre. Boxes being ticked. It's, it's pretty skillful television. It is. It's brilliantly done. It's genuinely brilliantly done and it, it it leads it it's the way the scenes lead into each other and they they lead you along in the story is just it's it's excellent it really is excellent the the the, <laughs> the again there's more of these little things uh this is where liz goes and tries to have a lie down and the crucifix sticks into the back of her hand she throws mm. it away and uh later on they're they're, they're just after they both go outside and see the Clarksicle, which may maybe I'll call that this episode Clarksicle. Uh, they see the Clarksicle. Uh, Liz is obviously furious. You know, all her answers are gone. You know, she doesn't understand that, that Evangeline has gotten them at this stage. Um, and so Evangeline kind of calmly goes off to try a generator. Liz is uh, in the background doing something else with other wires and she sees a hubcap going past. And so now we've had the orange peel, we've had the orange, we've had the twist and shout, we've had the crucifix. Now we've got a hubcap, a reference to the accident which Holden was killed. Um, and by the way, when Evangeline is putting on that that generator, I didn't see this the first time around, the light's flashing on and off. And you hear the screeching sound that she's heard a million times as the generator's trying to kick into life. But it's the screeching sound that we associate with her, whoever she is. Um, 
and there's a fucking figure that appears in the background, Dave. I don't know who it is or what it is or what it was meant to be. Did you notice that? I did, but again, couldn't figure out who it was. <laughs> You've got no answer for me. I said that. No. I don't know what it is. Uh, so uh, it, it makes all, it makes perfect sense anyway, because um, Evangeline then, is she has another one of her visions. She hears her name being called out in the snow again, and mm. she sees that moment where Clark is kind of glitching and saying she's awake, and it's starting to come around. We're starting to see how this is going to make sense. Evangeline now is kind of aware that there is more to life and she's going to talk to Elizabeth in a second. But before that, we see Rose, of course, when we, we meet her, she's she's servicing a rifle because what else would Rose be doing? And then we see the whole part about her helping. And this is split over a few sequences, helping Pete to uh, to get rid of the bodies. And, you know, at one point he says, look, I, I should do that. And she says, look, what do you want? You, you, you want to see me uh, basically gutting your father and cutting his lungs so he doesn't float. Um, and then she does say, look, you need to put the bodies into the war too. I think she says to quote, close the door. Mm. Um, and as they're sitting there afterwards, lowering the body, she says, you're probably thinking the worst part is done. It's not what comes after forever. That's the worst fucking part. Now I heard that and I thought, you yeah, know, that's typical Rose wisdom. That's quite wise. And then I thought, Dave, how many people are she kills? Rose killed Travis. Yeah, that's where I went with it as well. She had you know? far too much knowledge of what needed to be done, the, the <laughs> cutting yeah. the lungs and things like that, so the body wouldn't float, and knowing what would come afterwards. Now, it could well be that she killed Travis in a similar kind of way to what I was suggesting maybe Clark thought he was doing. Because we know yeah. that Travis had been sick. So maybe maybe it was more to end his suffering. But I was also thinking, like, how many other people has she killed over the year? Over well, the she's, very, she, she, she's very handy with knives and guns. We've seen her. Like very, the first time we see her, she's, she's gutting a wolf. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, so to and, me, and, I was wondering, like, there's there's obviously over the years people have clearly disappeared from Ennis. And I was wondering to myself, is Rose the reason they've disappeared? Is Rose <laughs> the one? Is she some sort of serial killer who's hiding out there? And, you know, she's got all these guns and knives in her gaff. And, you know, the, like just the scene that she's sitting there randomly of an evening servicing a gun. Because, like you said, what else would she be at? And it's like, yeah, it's just, it, it, it did. That all I could think about afterwards was like, how many people has she killed over the years? And every fucker in this show lies, right? So when she's telling really? Evangeline earlier on, oh, you know, I used to be this serious professor in a serious university writing serious things. And then I just got one day, I decided to up and leave. Right, okay. But the narrative that, um, that, that that's reinforced by Liz at the end in the interview with the cops is like, a lot of people come to Alaska to escape stuff, you know, uh, mm. sometimes they, they, they're here to look for something and sometimes they find it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very interesting. I'm overall uh, net positive uh, that, 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 that Rose is, is uh, not a killer. However, I do think there could be something that ha happened because when she speaks about Travis, she speaks about him in a way that 
I think he might have been a terrible set of lads himself. Uh, and he only ever came to her when he wanted something, etc., etc. Maybe they had some sort of fucked up relationship. And maybe that is what happened. But it, it's, it, I, I think it's brilliant that there's enough in that little scene of a couple of lines that it's inspired us that we could talk for another half hour on the subject. That's, that's a good sign, Dave. It is. and that, But that's what you're looking for as well. Like what we were saying earlier about how you know, when you're waiting for the episode to, to drop, you're, you're thinking about it and you're wondering where it's going to go. But also what, after the episode, when you get just these, like that scene in total is probably two minutes, you know, yeah. between the cuts. And yet, like you said, we, we could easily do an hour on on that and the greater Rose sphere. Like, this is what I really liked about this show is is the characters and how well the characters were developed, but only as far as we needed to know. We didn't get to know everything about anyone. Like you come away with kind of questions about all the characters. Yeah, oh, far more questions than answers. Yeah, anyone. and and yet you can easily get very invested in all of them <clears throat> from. Danvers and and Navarro to Hank to Pete to Rose to Clark like for good and bad you feel invested in them you want to know more about them but tantalizingly they're just pulled out of your grasp and it leaves you thinking about it and talking about it and wondering about it afterwards and the next sequence is an elongated Liz an Evangeline sequence. It begins with a conversation. It's uh, interrupted by uh, a, a near death. It continues with a conversation. And by the end of that second part of the conversation, these two, if they weren't already, are completely inextricably linked and the bond between them is firmly established. Mm. I, I find that very rewarding, but it's interesting to watch it play out. I think this is possibly the key chat in the episode. Uh, Liz and Evangeline are sitting there freezing because the generator, the power's gone off and um, Evangeline's gone all mystical, which really pisses Liz off. Her irritation at Evangeline and all that kind of mystical chat is one of the things that I've enjoyed most about it, that kind of direct opposition. Um, again, again, harkening back to the kind of conflict between Rust's mad theories and Marty's, you know, more meat and potatoes take on life. Um, I think this is really, really powerful all the way through it. And she says at one stage... Uh, Evangeline says that there was something out there calling me and Liz is just oh, stop it will you you know it's, it's kind of attitude and, and then she says you need to know something again Liz doesn't want to hear it then she says there's so much more than this and she suggests actually that knowledge of it it could be a comfort and that's obviously a reference to Julia that she's now at peace the um, Navarro is that she understands that whatever existence is it isn't the, the the thing that we've been sold, that there are either alternative dimensions, timelines, uh, something, but there's something out there, as she says. She's vague about it because she doesn't fully understand it, but oftentimes you'll see people who have had maybe DMT experience or perhaps um, ayahuasca or some other things like that. The common bond between them is that they come back from those experiences and they understand Okay, so I don't know what it is, but the nuts and bolts reality that 
I have been told to believe in, yeah, there's more than that. And I, I love that the show lead in, leaned into that because that's very much my take on existence on all planes. I'm going to pause it there because I, I, this is where the this is where we're getting we're getting into it now with this whole supernatural thing. And I was curious on your take on that, because I don't know where you stand on things like that. Um, you know, I'm not it, 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 I, I'm not saying like you need to make any big kind of statement one way or the other. But did you find yourself that sympathetic to Danvers more or sympathetic to uh, to Evangeline more in this interaction? Because I found myself very much going, oh, God, she knows. And Liz won't listen. Listen, Liz, listen. You know, that's, that's where I was going with it. Yeah, my mind was more along the lines of Danvers. I have to be honest. I was. Yeah, that's I was, what I thought. That's that's what I that's what I guessed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd be I'd be more on Danvers' side of this than I would be on Navarro's. I have to say. And the only thing about it though is, um, that changes because Liz starts to come around yeah. later on. There's some real trauma, and so the rage in Liz, uh, uh, because because Navarro tries to broach the topic of Holden. Mm. And her rage is fucking fantastic. Jodie Foster's brilliant in this scene. Uh, she says to Navarro, you, you can walk out there and follow your ghosts if you want to. She's so, like, she's almost incomp- in, almost um, incapable of expressing her words properly. The anger is just dripping off her. She says, you won't come here and tell me he said. You know, I don't want to hear about my son talking to me through some medium that is you. Mm. She says, I will rip you apart, she says. Other far more vicious things as well, she says. And at the end, she says, I am not merciful. And of course, I think for most people, they're in that Liz bracket there. They're thinking, enough of your fucking mumbo jumbo. My kid is dead. I only hear you telling me that you've made some connection to him. And I think the anger in Liz is because she's felt these moments. She's had these visions of Holden. She's had these flashbacks and completely in- inexplicable things happen to her. Um, and I think that's where the real rage comes from. Now, jump back in there if you want, but I'm just going to drive it on to the next part. Just, just that one that one line from, from Danvers, I am not merciful. Yeah. You understand I've got no mercy left. I thought that was really, really powerful and explains so much of why she is the way she is, that all it her does. mercy yeah, is gone because of yeah. what she's been through losing her son. When you think about what Eccleston's character says about her, when yeah. you think about how Hank describes her and everybody else relates to her, like they don't like her because she doesn't fucking like them. She doesn't yeah. like anyone. You know, that's it. But but in the in the in the flashback scenes, when she's dancing with her kid or she's laughing with her fella, you can like it's they're two totally different people, and it's she explains it here. I've got no mercy left, and it's yeah. a very simple way of saying I've got no time or tolerance left for anybody else's bullshit because I've got to deal with my own bullshit. Yeah, and she she says it's amazing the things that people can survive at one stage, mm. and obviously that's a reference to her own trauma. Like the, she, like like Evangeline, is a fucking seriously traumatized human. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. And now, and now by the end of the show, Pete is as well. You know, so it's uh, it, it's it's <laughs> it's very bleak on that level. Um, we, we anyway, Liz is done at that stage, and uh, we see a little flashback or a little uh, cutaway, and Leah is trying to make contact, which 
shows that she cares and that's nice that kind of seems there might be a path back there um and the next thing we know liz can't rest she can't settle she goes out and she's tracking evangeline who's gone out onto the ice and evangeline's having one of her visions it's a desert vision again her ear begins to bleed a tattooed hand reaches out for her and tells her her name um, um, which is, you know, again, I think I, I imagine some people might have thought that was hokey. I thought it was quite cool. Um, but it's a bit of a redemption moment for her. Um, Liz then hears Holden um, as she's looking for Evangeline. Uh, she hears his voice. Then she sees him under the ice. She bashes through the ice deliberately. And as she goes down and she's at the point of drowning in the water, she can hear him calling mommy. And that, that's when uh, she's rescued by uh, by Evangeline. And, you know, there are other flashbacks in that there to scenes of, of, of domestic bliss with her and Jake and Holden and birthday cakes and painting and all that kind of stuff. Oh. And, when they get back and she's towing her out and she saved her life and she's trying to warm her up and we see a different Liz now because Liz now has been humbled by that experience. Yeah. Uh, she has been shaken out of her cynicism or whatever it was. The rage is gone from her. Let's put it that way. Maybe it's not about being humbled. Maybe it's not about losing her cynicism, but the rage has gone from her because now she has felt a connection. She understands now that there is something else. And she asks Evangeline, what did he say? And that's a tacit admission that Evangeline and her take on the world is at least potentially right. And that Liz mm. wants to know some answers. And when she says he sees you, I have to say that's the closest they seem to be. This is that's the real bonding moment. The northern lights are on the background. They're later on. They're saying happy new year to each other. And uh, Liz says, "Look, if you decide to walk out and disappear, like you said you would, basically." She mm-hmm. says at the end, and quote, "Just try to come back, okay?" And I think that sets up our last little piece really well. Yeah, it does. Um, there's there's a couple of things I just want to hit on this. Number one, and it's a minor irrelevant thing, but I did notice that. Liz says Happy New Year and Navarro says Happy New Year's. And I always find it odd that there's the two different ones. It's completely irrelevant, but I just... I didn't notice that too, actually. That's interesting. It just kind of struck me. But you mentioned with Evangeline, the tattooed hand, and telling her her name. And throughout this series, we've we've seen Navarro almost not know where she fits in. Mm. Like, she's obviously got somewhat of a relationship with the natives because she is of the native descent, but she's never fully been accepted or, or she feels like she's not fully accepted. And she's talked about it in the past, how she has nobody. When her sister died, she said, I have nobody. And this moment of her being told her name, her tribal name, when we get on, she uses it herself. And it's almost like I am actually one of these people. This is who I am. It's almost like her finally ex- fully accepting and being accepted for the person that she is and, and, and who she is and her own heritage and her own family lineage. And I thought that was quite powerful. 
Oh, genuinely. I mean, if you think back to little moments like when she arrives in the the, the first flashback where we see Annie Kay properly and she's uh, doing her midwife job. Um, one, the first thing you hear when Evangeline walks in her trooper costume is, "Who let that bitch in?" or something like that. What's that bitch doing here? Mm. Something like that. So that, like you say, it's been firmly established that she just doesn't fit in anywhere. She's not of the. The, the 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 white community she's not of the mining people she's not of the police force she can't decide what unit she's going to be with uh and she's not of her own um um indigenous background either because she doesn't actually know and i mean it's a lovely metaphor isn't it not knowing your name can you can you think of a better way of sort of um symbolizing the concept of identity is it's yeah. really powerful that isn't it um i'm I'll attempt later on to pronounce it because she does very much use it. I'll, I'll definitely leave that to you. As you know, I am name challenged. <laughs> so I will not. <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, strap in. It's going to be the full 90 minutes, this one, if you're listening. Um, we do have a very big chunk left, but we'll get it done and we'll get out of here in 90. So it's not any longer than that. Um, so as they're kind of having this lovely bonding moment and you know, Northern Lights in the background. Um, Evangeline's having one of these reflective moments. She said she she kind of felt like Clark. She felt like she was holding the hatch and, you know, mm. she's metaphorically speaking, she says, I was fucking terrified of the one trying to open it. And then she says, I was so wrong. <laughs> Liz has already forgotten that she got into the whole mystical thing. And she says, you know, what would you say there? And, you know, uh, you know, Navarro thinks, oh, I was wrong. And, and there's the opening there to talk about because there's so much more to life and I should have accepted what was on the far side of the hatch. And let's get into that again. No, no, Liz doesn't want to do that. Liz, Liz heard something about the hatch and holding the hatch. And all of a sudden, boom, we're off detectiving again. She's had one of her cop moments and we're rushing off to get some, you know, um, chemicals and UV lights. And we see a fingerprint and it just happens to be a, a handprint, which happens to be missing two fingers, which we happen to have seen in several shots over the show um, in a character that has just been there over the show um, in the laundromat and in the initial scene where um, she's been a... Um, She's fought back against her abusive husband and stuff like that. This will all come together. And of course, Liz being Liz has done the true detectiving um, uh, at, at full volume here. She puts it together, the missing. She's the one, obviously, who understands what's happened here. Um, and we get the kind of idea of the question isn't, uh, who killed Annie Kay? The question is, who knows who killed Annie Kay? Yeah. And again, that's a little a little uh, reference back to the whole ask the question thing that's been going through it. Um, and we get to the house owned by a lady called Beatrice. And she happens to have with her another lady called Blair. I'm not sure if they live together or whatever, but they go to the house looking for both of them. Uh, later on, a whole lot of uh, um, accomplices, shall we say, pitch up as well in this little, um, it looks like a mobile home type deal. And Liz introduces herself and Evangeline then steps forward when it's looking like Liz is making no headway. Uh, and she says, I am Evangeline Sukinachuk. And then she says Navarro at the end of it. Mm. And of course, this has a wonderful connection with the with the lady Beatrice, who says that that's a family name in, in her clan as well. And she says, uh, Evangeline says, what does it mean? 
And again, I don't know. I, I can see how this scene might stick in some people's craw. I think it's a little bit too, I don't know, um, um, sentimental or something. But she says it means the return of the sun after the long darkness. Now, that's going to come back, I think, because I reckon um, that has a relevance to a big question we'll be asking about the end at the end about what has happened to Navarro. Now, I'm, I'm going to get stuck into the beginning of this scene here yeah. and then I'll stop if you want to, if you want to interrupt, please just jump in. Um, they sit down anyway, and and, and we get the explanation. It, it, none of them understood what had happened for six years until what again one of these reviews was saying a very fortunate incident. It, it took six years for them to notice that the water kind of runs down between some tiles, and Beatrice spots this. So then she finds a hatch and she finds a facility, um, and uh, we see that the the some of the others then begin to photo stuff, uh, pho- photograph stuff, and. Basically, the girls, the women are on the job. They they have now a mission. They understand something is hinky here, and they're getting to the bottom of what happened with Annie Kay because she finds uh, in that initial ex- exploration, Beatrice finds this uh, screwdriver uh, with the star shaped head on it. And there are a sequence of flashbacks here, but before it, um. We're introduced to this concept of stories and narratives, uh, which I think is a real writerly thing to put in here. Um, And, you know, they're asked, like, why didn't you go to the cops? And Beatrice is very sneering, dismissive. And she says, look, it's always the same story with the same ending. Nothing ever happened. So we told ourselves a different story with a different ending. And that's where we flash back to what happened. Jump in there and just tell me what you make of that. Uh, And and even if you want to jump forward, what, what do you think of this whole sequence? So there's two things that struck me here. The, the, re, the, the sneering response to the question, why didn't you go to the cops? It's clearly Hank that they're talking about, that he's not going yeah. to help us. He doesn't help us. But there's a, there's a little bit of a comedic side to this scene as well, Trav, where they pull up at what is quite clearly a small enough house and two women open the door. And they sit down at the kitchen table and 47 more women appear out of the sitting room. And like that clown car meme. Yeah, but it also reminds me of that Tommy Tiernan joke about how the Irish used to not invade countries, but infest countries. Two of them would rock up, go into a tent, and 43 would come back out the next day. And it's just kind of remind, like it's just this never ending stream of women just appearing out of a little room. And they're just all of a sudden it goes from a two on two, like, well, maybe Navarro and, and Danvers arrest these two women to all of a sudden, there's not a hope in hell they're arresting all of these women. And there's like a, there's like a, a, you know, belief, but you mentioned that the thing with Evangeline, when she says the name and she asks him what it means. And you're right. Some people will see it as hokey. Again, I thought it was really powerful. I, I feel like Navarro through this entire show has been on this path of discovery of discovering who she is and where she fits in the world. And that is just more of that. She finds out her name now she finds out what it means, and as you said, we'll come back to the meaning of it. But I, I thought that was brilliantly done. I, if if people had an issue with that scene, I think it's genuinely one of the best sequence of scenes from the entire show 
just from a personal character development arc. Exactly. And the whole idea of the search for identity is huge here. And it's, a, it's, it's such a universal theme that I think most people can understand. And I, I, you have to be, I think, looking for uh, negatives not to see it. I, I understand that it might seem a bit sentimental at moment, but again, it's, it is actually quite critical in getting them into the room, which then begins to fill up so spectacularly. Uh, when I spoke afterwards, uh, to uh, some people who've been watching it, both of whom happen to be female, um, they enjoyed the fuck out of this next back, uh, flashback sequence where the women sort of um, mobilise and invade Salal and and and, and um, set the lads off to their fate. And they really, really enjoyed it. And I thought it was quite revealing, you know, because it was um, women being, you know, empowering themselves and going off and doing something uh, in in terms of of justice now when we see the flashback it's it's quite powerful and <laughs> they are they're all tooled up and they uh they invade uh and and i guess maybe the the scientists being the kind of stereotypical wimpy lads uh maybe are hugely intimidated and uh can't uh, cope with this uh, invasion of these of the of these folk at all and you know beatrice kind of she doesn't say a whole lot. We see what mostly what happens. But what Beatrice does say is really interesting because as they bundle them in, the scientists uh, from Salal bundle them into the back of a lorry, bring them out onto the ice, um, uh, remove their clothes and send them off into uh, the blizzard. Uh, she says, you know, that they had the opportunity. They might have been very half frozen to death, but they would have survived if the if she didn't want them. And this is where it all starts coming together for me, especially in the second viewing, because Beatrice says, honey, they did it to themselves when they dug up in her home in the ice, when they killed her daughter in there, they woke her up. And it's literally all coming together. And I couldn't help but flash back then to whatever episode it was, one or two, where Darwin's done that little drawing and Pete says, what's this? And Kayla says, oh, it's a local legend of this woman. And yeah, right. So again, I think a local goddess type figure, I, I think this is hugely, hugely relevant and another very gratifying tie up only if you're willing to go there in terms of the possibility of what Evangeline believes believes about the world and what these women believe about the world this is the story at least that they've told themselves uh, as they say, as they would say and if she wanted them she would take them she said we see them drawing the spiral on 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 lund specifically on lund as well which is quite interesting him being the initial sort of aggressor and the scary uh, guy that he was later on as he was dying um like i say she says, I guess she wanted to take them. I guess she ate their fucking dreams from the inside out and spit their frozen bones. But it's just a story. I, I, uh, this play on narratives and stories, I think, is class. And it, it gives people, I think, who are not willing to go there fully with the supernatural thing, a kind of an out. That, oh, these people have told themselves this story, so that's what they believe, and that's fine. It doesn't explain any of the stuff that's happening with crucifixes and oranges and visions and polar bears and all the rest of it. But it allows people who are not of that bent, I think, a little bit of a way to sort of uh, make themselves a little bit more at home with the story, Dave. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it definitely does. It 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 gives them that that into it. I think. Now, there's an example of some bad 
cop action here because uh, or poor detecting, shall we say, uh, when they decide to um, just allow these ladies completely off the hook. Um, you would say it's probably natural justice. Anyway, the decision's always re- already been made, as Liz says. Um, there's no murder. There was a, a weather event, a slab avalanche. So there's a very easy way of just letting them off the hook and not p- pursuing it any anymore. And we see that lovely sequence at the end. Uh, Liz goes and Evangeline's left there and you get feeling that you were talking about of belonging between them. Um, but Evangeline's still a, a cop on some level and this story has haunted her and the details of it still haunt her. And she asks about the tongue. And remember, they'd asked Clark about the tongue. He said it was probably a hank. But the way that she responds to it, Beatrice, she says, oh, that's not part of our story, almost dismissively. Mm. And then she says, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And again, I didn't believe her. So what are we again? That's where, like I said, that's one of the few things that's still left open ended. Yeah, because I didn't believe Beatrice. Did you? No, no, I didn't believe her at all. I don't. The way she said, I don't know what you're talking about was just. It was very clearly like I do know what 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 you're talking about, but it's not part of this story. This is the story yeah, we're yeah, giving yeah, yeah. you, and this is the story you're going to take because there's fifty of us, <laughs> and you've got no choice in the matter. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So we we get then to this lovely uh, again season one flashback where we see Liz being interviewed by two cops in the same way that uh, Rust was being in the in the towards the conclusion of the of of season one, and you know she's batting off all these questions about where Hank is and look, you know, his body will show up in the summer. Uh, we always, we, we'll find him. We always do. She says, unless we don't. Uh, and then, you know, she says things like loads of lovely enigmatic things like some questions don't have any answers. Uh, we see uh, as this interview is being conducted, there's this all these uh, montage sequence of stuff happening in the background that's beginning to tie up the story. So I'm going to go through them and then you can pick out what you want to do to mm. finish the show. So basically in this sequence, we see a cutaways to um, uh, Liz going to Evangeline's house. It's empty, but it's been emptied out. The bed is stripped. There are no possessions left. I think there might be one photograph of her and her sister, um, which is quite symbolic on the on the fridge. Um, the only thing that's left is on the bed. There is the polar bear toy and a phone. Um, and we hear Liz saying some people come to Alaska to escape. Sometimes they come here looking for something. Sometimes they find it. Um, and we know that that phone contains Clark's confession. So it's like Evangeline has really tied up the case and uh, allowed Liz closure on it as well. Left that symbolic toy there, which Liz had thrown out into the snow um, when Evangeline confronted her about it before in a clumsy way, trying to make her understand her worldview and that holding still out there and so on. Um, we see Kavik coming across a SpongeBob t- uh, toothbrush kind of a little gesture. I feel very sorry for Calvin because he's clearly madly in love with uh, Evangeline, but it's not strong enough in her that um, he factors into her uh, apart from this little gesture. Um, we can also see then uh, a native looking dude uh, looking over at the mine and a big closed sign on it. So that's kind of healing moment, right? Uh, we cut away to Liz and Leah eating sandwiches, looking like they're going on a trip uh, down some long road. And they say 
right, what happened with Navarro disappearing? Uh, the cops ask. And she says, look, I don't think you're going to find Evangeline Navarro out there in the ice. That's where we get the cutaway to Pryor with Darwin uh, tucked in beside him, looking kind of haunted. Um, and they go on and say, what about these sightings? And, and, and she says, yeah, well, this is Ennis. Nobody ever really leaves. And that's the last line we hear, because the last thing we see then is Liz uh she's putting down something that she's been reading she goes out onto a deck in what isn't clearly isn't her house and we assume is this holiday gaff that she's gone to at least i did maybe you didn't and then there's a barrier in terms of a sort of a a, a wall and a, and, a, and a window and and then to and a door and through the door walks evangeline uh and she seems to be on the same deck as Liz. She doesn't look at her specifically, I don't think. I mean, she, she thinks she t- tilts her head a bit. Liz doesn't look at her. That's what it is. Liz doesn't look at her, but Evangeline looks around at her. And so we're on, on a simple way, it could be that she's gone on the lamb and, 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 and reconnected with her buddy here um, because, you know, that's their, their pals again now or their friends. And that's, you know, what Liz's wish was earlier on, you know, please come back. Other people have said that, that that um, Evangeline's dead, and that this is Liz now capable of seeing the dead because she's connected with Evangeline's worldview. So much on the table there. In the minutes that we have left in this show, I want you to take over. Give me your final thoughts, and you can tell us at the end of them whether you're confused enough to do a follow up or whether we think we've covered it. Uh, I'll start by saying I would like to do one more episode on this. I, I think. I think 30 to 40 minutes would get us wrapped up. There's just some more of the characters I'd like to to get into, a couple of little angles I'd like to look at as well, and just you know, a couple of little feel-good things. But um, in terms of this this end sequence where you, know, you, you get, again, the nod to season one where Liz is being interviewed and she's explaining things, uh, we always find them unless we don't is a, is a really, really good line. <laughs> Um, but we get the line. So when when Pryor, when Peter Pryor is putting his father into the water, I was thinking, well, what's he doing with the second body? And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, where he sort of detached himself from the reality. And he's gone into kind of a cold, calculated manner of operation in that not only did he go to Rose sink his father's body he also set his father up to take the fall for murder so you know they've basically covered the tracks on hank well he murdered this guy he had him in his truck he's clearly gone out on the ice or whatever to dig a hole and he must have fallen in very clean very straightforward and very believable because there's a body in his truck. So I thought that was really good. And I, I thought the way they wrapped that was cool. I, I thought that the, the visual of Navarro walking away was very, very cool as well. And then I love that last scene where she comes out onto the deck and it's clearly not either of their homes. This is somewhere else that the two of them have reconnected. So I also thought when the ice and the snow had thawed and gone away, how breathtaking is the scenery? 
Like, I never would have even considered that anywhere in Alaska would have that type of scenery. But as, you know, gentlemen who live in beautiful rural Ireland, we're well accustomed to said scenery. Um, I, I thought the, the last, because when, when they knock on the door of the house and the two women open, you're thinking to yourself, they've got a lot to wrap up here. And like, I can see the runtime. There's not a whole lot of time left here. Yeah. And it, 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 they could have rushed it, but I actually felt like they paced it really, really well. And we got so many, so much information, but not an overload of information. They wrapped up a lot of different angles without having to skirt over too many of them and kind of leave you going, oh, well, hang on a sec. Now, pause just there and let's walk back a step. Why is this this? Why why have you finished it this way? I thought that that last five to ten minutes of the show were genuinely exceptional. Like, I feel like they ended it really strong. There are some some open questions that we're left with. The tongue, I think, is the primary one. But again, we've had we've had a, a, one explanation, which is that Hank did it, and maybe he did it to seem to to kind of throw the the scent off that it was something else. Maybe it was a ritualistic killing. Um, obviously, we get the line of, "Well, that's not part of our story. I don't know what you're talking about," which hints at something else. And kind of reopens the question about the tongue. Because the hang thing, it sort of boxed it off for me. That was, once they said that, I was like, oh, well, okay, fair enough. Maybe he's done that to make it seem ritualistic or whatever. But then it it gets reopened. And I think that was quite clever the way they did that. But I I do think they, they wrapped most of it really well. It's, I think, masterfully edited that last part. And this is a perfect Mm. example of what I was talking to you about earlier on, where on the first watch through, there's a certain level of pressure that you want it to be good. And like you, when we were getting to the end of it there, I was going, oh, how are they going to finish this now in this amount of time? So I think I was kind of distracted by that as I was watching the first time round, and it did do it quite well, but there's so much information coming at you. So the, the second time round, I was calm in the knowledge that I would get my answers, and I found so many more answers because I was calm in the knowledge that I would get my answers. And as a result, I have to say that's that leaves it with like a really net positive on this season of television for me. I think, you know, it's 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 really well done. And if you if you allow yourself to go with the idea that um, Beatrice and Evangeline and all their take on the world, that world view is um the the dominant one here and we really lean into it at the end liz is very much leaning into the idea that ennis is one of those places where you know things happen and people see things and you know it's ennis like you know that kind of attitude um i think that's fantastic and she talks again about how ancient ennis is as well you know it's it's there since before alaska was alaska um all of these things i think lean into very much Mm. uh, reaffirming this idea that has evolved in some way from her experience um, with this and her worldview has changed and Evangeline's worldview changed she just didn't understand it and her her journey is more to discover who she is Liz's journey was more to discover some sort of way of making peace with the fact that 
um, holding is still there on some other spiritual or um, um, dimensional plane. Uh, and, and, and so we have that kind of wrap up. And I think it's really good that you see Pete looking haunted. Yes, he's had his he's he's back with his with his wife and he's back with his son. But like you said earlier on, and as 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 Evangeline says, priors fucked for life. Yeah, I mean you're not gonna sh- you're not gonna shrug off mm. that thing. You, you can go into that um, uh, sort of determined, uh, cold-minded, cold-eyed way of of acting. But Rose told him this yeah. is gonna come back. Um, yeah, the work and I, starts now, basically. The, what, yeah, 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 yeah. So I I just felt like that in that montage they did so much and the only other question the big question that i saw being asked by so many people is what do you think happened happened to evangeline so this is a tongue thing which we have the partial answer for we also have i think liz leaning into the idea that you're not going to find evangeline out there in the ice i think that suggests and leaves us with a kind of a happy feeling that evangeline isn't dead Mm. but again that's going to be a big question that might come up as part of any other further kind of recap sum up type show that we're going to do for this one, though, I feel like we've done good service to it. We're coming on now for nearly 100 minutes. I think we've... Uh, run, we're, we're in stoppage run, time, Trev. Paul, Paul, Tier- Paul Tierney's the fourth official. He's a terrible <laughs> set of lads. <laughs> we, we've run out the towel here. I, 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 think we should, I think we should wrap it up because otherwise we're in danger of, 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 of taking away anything we might have from that wrap-up special. Mm-hmm. Let's leave it sit with ourselves and put a, uh, together a few questions and a few ideas and see if we can come up with a, a sort of a sum-up special next week. What do you reckon? Yeah, sounds good to me. Well, we will say sayonara then for this episode of True Detective. Uh, it has been absolutely really enjoyable. Delighted this is what we sort of chose as our vehicle for uh, rebooting and relaunching this show with the two of us. Um, it just feel, it felt right from the start. Uh, like this show has felt right from the start. Even our film choices have felt right from the start. And if you haven't, go and listen to the first episode on Fatal Deviation because we're just about to record the second episode now because that's the kind of lads we are doing hours of these things back to back like mentalists. I was Trev Downey. That was Dave Hendrick. This is Buzz. We'll see you soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.